Well, good morning, everyone. Truly, I can say it's a joy to be back with you here at the Evangelical Free Church of Oroville. Thank you for praying for us as we were away for a couple of weeks to see our kids back east. We hadn't seen our daughter and son-in-law for over a year. We got to spend a week with them in North Carolina. They're going to seminary there. They're preparing to go into youth ministry. Such fun to see how they're growing in the Lord and how they're preparing for ministry and great to see what they're doing and we can finally announce because it's Facebook official that we're going to be grandparents later this year. So we're, we're looking forward obviously to that uh, great event in our lives. And then we spent a week in Maryland with our son and daughter-in-law. He's got a new job working just outside the DC area. So we were in Maryland and seeing how they're doing settling in and they've got involved in a really good church. Uh, both of our kids out east are involved in a really good church. We're just thankful for how they're growing. And so it's good for us to be away to just play and pray and have fun and go to museums and uh, just have a lot of fun together with them for the first time in many months uh, with, with our kids. So thank you for the time away. Thank you, Pastor Brian, for so w filling in so well. Uh, we did follow. We know what you were doing. And so we're thankful for the teaching that went on while we were gone. I want to just give an update. Um, when we announced the, uh, the missions conference a number of months ago, as the mission committee was thinking about all that was going into it, we're inviting in several of our global partners. They're going to come in and spend several days with us. Uh, we're going to be hosting them. Uh, we're going to be preparing them. We want to have special events, booths, uh, music presentations. We're having them send in recipes. We're just looking to get buy-in. We thought, well, we just want to make sure that people are going to be here. And so we set out saying, well, let's put at least a nominal registration fee. But um, we've heard the concerns. We've heard what you've had to say. This was not ever about a money-making thing. It was just more to, to build a big sense of momentum. So as a result, talking with the elders, talking with the missions committee, we've waived all the registration fees. We just want you to be part of what's happening. Uh, this will be the first one in over six years that we've had on a church-wide basis. Many of the global partners that, that we've partnered with for decades in some cases will be here. And so this will be a great opportunity for all of us to get to know them, to spend time with them, hear about their ministries, hear about what's happening. And there's special events happening around that. We're going to show the Jesus film on a Thursday night. We're going to have a music concert Saturday night. There's going to be international potluck on Saturday night. There's going to be sessions all throughout the weekend. So we, we're asking you to sign up. Now, the reason why we're asking you to sign up is because we're preparing we're gift bags. We want to know how many are going to be coming for the meals. And, but we're not taking attendance. So we're not going to say, if you've signed up, we're going to check to see whether you've come to every session, come to every event. Just let us know what events you're coming to so that we can prepare accordingly. That's why we're having you register. We need you to register. This is the biggest church event of the year. We're all, all ministries of the church are involved. So set aside some of that time, if you can, to come and be with us from that Thursday night, September 7th, all the way to Sunday morning, September 10th. And we know that not everyone can be there at every session. But we'd sure like it if you'd make an effort just to come and celebrate with our uh, missionaries and what we're doing as a global-minded church wanting to see the gospel go forth across the street and around the world. So if you have any more questions after that, please come and see me, see someone on the missions committee. I apologize for the confusion that was caused by all of this. I'm sorry for uh, whatever angst we, we caused, and it was not our intention. And thank you for communicating your concerns with us. That's how it should operate. We communicate, we listen, we make decisions. And now let's move forward together so we can have a great time of celebration of the gospel, which is job one for us as a church after all, to preach Christ, to live for Christ, both locally and globally.
All right, well, uh, as we were on our, making our way back earlier this week from Washington, D.C., you may have heard about all the storms that hit up and down the East Coast. We got caught in that, and so we had to spend an extra night uh, on the road uh, away, and so we're really working hard to get everything ready. So I don't have a full-fledged PowerPoint this morning that we, I usually have, but the, the good folks upstairs have helped us prepare a simple one, so you at least be able to follow along. And I hope you picked up the extra form that has the sermon outlined. Uh, that goes along with our sermon this morning. Well, in a story that appeared in the journal Pulpit Digest, author Bob Woods related the story of a family that went on a vacation to Carlsbad Caverns in that famous national park in New Mexico. They had two children, a, a son aged 11, a daughter aged 7, and as usual for the tour, when they reached the deepest part in the cavern, the guide turns off all the lights to dramatize how quiet and dark it is below the earth's surface. Well, the little girl who's only seven years old immediately started to cry when suddenly the voice of her brother spoke into the darkness and said, don't cry. Somebody here knows how to turn on the lights. And in a real sense, that is the message of the gospel. Gospel light is available in a very dark world. And we could let the darkness overcome us with fear and overwhelm us, but there is someone who knows how to turn on the lights because, in fact, he is the light of the world. And so as we continue in our study of, of the gospel according to Matthew, we've had two weeks in, in a different book, and we want to get back to our time in the gospel according to Matthew. We are now at a critical stage in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Up until this point in Matthew, he has spent the bulk of his ministry in the region of Galilee. But that aspect of his ministry is coming to an end. And as we saw last time when we were in Matthew, he has taken the disciples back over the Sea of Galilee into the Gentile areas on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to have a time of instruction and personal preparation. And so he's taking them further north into Gentile areas for this time of teaching, time of training, instruction, because he's getting them ready for what is to come. Because very shortly then we will have this decisive move in Matthew where Jesus turns and is going determined to go to Jerusalem to carry to completion his reason for coming to earth. So this morning we're going to see actually what could be seen as a high point in the lives of the disciples. We see perhaps the greatest confession of faith in Matthew. And that great confession is all the more surprising because it happens in a place of great spiritual darkness. And yet that is fitting. It's fitting that Jesus in front of this edifice that we'll talk about momentarily, that is the symbol of darkness, is where Jesus is proclaimed as the son of the living God, where he came as the light of the world to banish all evil and darkness and sin and death. So if you're able this morning, I encourage you to stand as we read our passage this morning. We're going to read from Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. And the living... Word of God says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord given to us under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit for edification and instruction about Jesus, who is the Son of the living God. Let us receive it for the intention it was given. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, to you, O Lord, we turn now this morning because we're in a holy place. We're in your presence with your word open before us, and we depend upon your Holy Spirit now to teach us. Father, we know that unless and until you are at work among us and our guide, we, we waste this time together. And Father, more than anything, we want to know that we have met with the living God this morning. So Lord, would you help us to discharge our burdens at your feet? And whatever distractions we have brought in, to lay them aside. And would you give us eyes to see in a greater way this Jesus that we confess. That we would know more about him and know him more. And leave this place having been blessed. Because we've met with you. So would you guide us now in these holy moments. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, this is one of the most important passages in the, the entire gospel according to Matthew. There's been much ink that has been spilled in the history of the church about the meanings of these different phrases. It contains often heard, but perhaps sometimes misunderstood ideas of the rock upon which I will build the church, or the keys to the kingdom of heaven, or the authority to bind and to loose. And in fact, because this passage is so important, we're going to spend two weeks in it. We're going to walk through the passage today and give the general overall meaning and application. And then next week, we're going to tease out what is Jesus actually saying to Peter in this passage and what is Peter's role in the formation of the early church. And so we're going to be doing some biblical theology as we try to put together different aspects of the of New Testament theology and see how they fit together and are fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ as he guides his people. And so we look forward to how he will teach us and we continue to pray as we always do that he would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So let's get started. We begin in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, I'm just going to stop there. Jesus is now in Gentile territory. We said he's already crossed over the Sea of Galilee. He's warning the disciples. He's already warned them about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We saw that last time. And he moves further north into this region named after the Caesar in Rome and after Philip, Herod the, Herod the Great's son. Caesarea Philippi is located about 35 miles north of Galilee. It has a very infamous history and is an amalgamation of pagan and political intrigue. It was here where centuries before King Jeroboam introduced idolatry into this region and his rebellion against the God of Israel. And he moved the people to worship the Baals, the Baals, the gods of the Canaanites. And the main feature of this area, is a, of this mountainous area, was a massive rock which has a large open cave. That's the setting of our passage this morning. I want you to imagine that cave in the background. Knowing its location, knowing its history is important to understanding this key moment in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, centuries after King Jeroboam, the Greeks took control of the area. And as was their custom, they brought with them their culture, their language, their poets, their authors, their religions. See, the Greeks sought not only to conquer a people militarily, they wanted to conquer them culturally by imposing their language, by imposing their way of life. That is actually why first century Palestine, the Roman Empire, was ready, prepared for the way of the Lord because the Greek language had spread so far north, south, east, and west because of the imperialistic attitudes of the Greeks who had taken over this area. But at this particular spot in what we know as Caesarea Philippi, they had set up a temple to the god Pan. And so the cave was called Panaeon and the area Panaeos after this Greek god. And into the sides of this cave were carved niches, And into these niches were carved images of idols and sacrifices were offered, but whether to Pan or to the other gods in the Greek pantheon. Pan was known as the god of fertility. He was half goat, half man. And so you can imagine some of the degrading acts that were performed by people and animals as part of their worship of this Greek god. We're reminded that the the worship of pagans, of idolatry, degrades the worshiper. And how different that is from Christian worship, whereby the one who is made in the image of God and is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb is lifted up. He's redeemed. He's restored. His shame and dig- and di- his shame is taken away. His dignity is re- restored as his guilt is forgiven. Unlike pagan worship, where their dignity and honor are defamed and debased and shamed as they try to please the wrath of these gods and goddesses. Well, a few centuries after the Greeks, the Romans took control of the area. And they renamed it after the emperor in Rome. That's where the Caesarea part of the name comes from. And so to the practices already done, they began to add devotion to the emperor, whereby confession was made of allegiance to the emperor, and sometimes even offerings were made there. So the power of Rome was celebrated, symbolizing human power, government control, government strength. And so at this area which many refer to today as the Hellgate. There's a mixture of paganism, animism, idolatry, immorality, and human power. The names of Baal and Pan and Caesar and even Hades, all representing forms of sinful and fleshly power are represented at this place. And from out of this cave, this huge open hole in this cave flowed water which actually were the sources of the Jordan River. And it was believed that this cave opened up to the demonic realm below. And so it's referred to as the Gate of Hades, the underworld, the boat of the dead. These waters were thought to flow from the mythical underground river known in the Greek Greek world as the Styx River. And in the days of Jesus, that water continued to flow, though in subsequent centuries earthquakes have changed the rock formation in the area and so water no longer flows from that cave but it spurts out in surrounding areas which continue to feed the Jordan River so the people in their superstition and their mysticism and their fear they thought that this hole led to the realm of darkness the place of the gods the underworld where spiritual darkness lived so we have here this place that symbolizes the mixture of pagan worship, fleshly pursuit, and human power. It's the perfect backdrop to symbolize 
all that opposes God and his righteousness. And that's the background and the backdrop of our passage for today. The disciples would have been amazed to be there, knowing all that it represented. Why is Jesus stopping at the gates of Hades? And it is here that we see the greatest confession of faith in Christ in the New Testament. And so that leads us to our first point in our passage today, which is the great question. The great question. Continue reading in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So as they're standing there gazing at this impressive but stark reminder of evil, Jesus asks his disciples about the reaction of the crowds to his ministry. What are they saying about me? What are they talking about as they hear me and they see my teaching? What's the scuttlebutt anyway? What's the corner gossip? In calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus uses his favorite self-designation. He uses that title for himself more than any other title than any other name. And the meaning of the Son of Man has a rich and long pedigree. We've seen it somewhat in Matthew. We're going to come across it again as we get closer and closer to the events of the cross. Verse 14 continues. He says, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jer Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so as he is soliciting responses from the disciples, they're providing it. And all of these responses up to this point, they're positive, but they're not yet complete. They're not enough in and of themselves. So they say, well, some say John the Baptist. You recall earlier in our study in Matthew that that's what Herod Antipas thought. After all, he had heard that there was a preacher preaching judgment, drawing crowds, even making reference to miracles, and he knew that he had put John to death. So who is this one? He said, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now think about it. Back then there was no widespread means of communication. You didn't have pictures everywhere. So people would often not know what famous people looked like. They would just hear of or hear of or hear of or hear of people. And so we could understand then why they might confuse John and Jesus. Since many of them would have never seen either man. They would have just heard of their reputation. So we remind ourselves that John is different than Jesus John is the forerunner of Jesus. John is the one who is used of God to announce the way of the Lord. But, of course, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, the disciples say, well, others say Elijah. And there was a long and expected tradition that Elijah would come back before the day of the Lord. It flows right out of the, what we know as the last verse or among the last verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4.5, which says, Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great an awesome day of the Lord comes. And so justifiably, there was this expectation that Elijah would come. Elijah was a prophet that pronounced judgment, very charismatic personality. He performed miracles. He confronted the power structures of his day. And so did Jesus. He pronounces judgment. He performs miracles. He confronts the power structures of his day. And so many thought that he might be Elijah. And so we saw earlier then in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus answers that question and says that John the Baptist is the one who was promised. He is the one who came in the power and spirit of Elijah, as we affirm also in the Gospel according to Luke. So Elijah has come. 
The kingdom of heaven has come. It's been inaugurated. And in part, we can see it. But its fullness will come one day when Jesus returns in glory and great power. And that's our hope, to see the fullness of the kingdom one day. Well, the disciples go on and they say, well, others say, you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jeremiah was a prophet who announced gloom and doom. He was the the weeping prophet who wept over the the sins of the people and pleaded with them that they would come to repentance and not have to suffer the judgment hand of God. He spoke against Jerusalem, against Israel, against the temple. And here comes this Jesus who has warnings for Israel, speaks against what's happening in Jerusalem with the priesthood, speaks against the temple. And so some thought, perhaps this is Jeremiah. Because there were some traditions in that day that thought that Jeremiah and Isaiah would return before the end of days concerning the expression or one of the prophets there could be a whole sermon just on this sermon just on this verse which is going all the way back to the days of Moses who was given the promise that one day a prophet would come like Moses who spoke with God face to face who performed miracles who would come and the people longed for the prophet and Jesus was that prophet as the early church affirmed in several places in its early preaching, but here's the problem. The people were blind. The fulfillment was right in front of them, and they didn't see it. Oh, friends, we need eyes to see that only God can give. We need ears to hear that only He can provide so that we would see and understand what is God doing in our midst. As John 1, 11 says, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. It may not be said of us that we had the opportunity to encounter the living God or to see him at work in our midst, but we were too distracted by the things that we thought were important that day. Our to-do list just had to be done, so we didn't take time to look at what is God actually doing. And so as far as the testimony of the crowd goes, it's correct. Jesus was a prophet, but oh, he was so much more than a prophet both in his own words and in the words of others. He was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was the King of kings. He was the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, the Lord of all, the greatest of all time, having the name that is above every name. And so Jesus asked the question. He receives the response, but he recognizes that there's a human level of understanding. But his concern is not so much with what the crowds are saying. He's drawing his disciples into a conversation. His concern is with them. They're the ones that he's preparing to carry on the ministry after he goes. And so he says to them in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? The you here in the original is in the second person plural. It is a question for all of the disciples present. And the emphasis, the word order is actually you. You, however... Who do you say that I am? That's a question that Jesus will ask of each and every one of us. And it is the most important question we will ever hear. And it is the most important question we will ever answer. Because it will impact our lives not only now but for eternity. Miss that question. Give the wrong answer. Have the wrong understanding and you will miss it all. We have but these few years on this earth to get this question right. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? That's the great question that Jesus began with, and then we get to the great 
confessors, the great confessors. And we continue in verse 16. And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now the question went out to all of them, but it's Peter who answers. That doesn't surprise us. He's often the spokesman for the apostles. In fact, each time there is a list of the apostles, it is always Peter's name who is first. And in the unfolding drama of the gospel story, Peter does have a special role to play. And we will look at that in more detail next week. Yet for all of that, this is the only time that Matthew actually refers to this man as Simon Peter. He uses different derivatives of his name, but here he calls him Simon Peter. Something important is happening here. He's drawing attention to the human name of Peter. And in the response that Peter gives, or in response to his response, if you will, there are two critical things that take place. First, we have the truthful declaration about who Jesus is. He is the divine Messiah and Son. You are the Christ, Peter says, the Son of the living God, verse 17. You are the Christ. Literally, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. And with that statement, I think we'll see very clearly Peter is speaking here better than he knew, better than he even understood. But he says that Jesus is the promised one who fulfills the law and the prophets. And we've already seen, you know, we go back a few chapters and Jesus says, I have given you the secrets to the kingdom of heaven, but the apostles have not always understood and they have to grow in their understanding. And here there's a great confession of faith, but as we move through the story, we'll see that the apostles still need to grow in their understanding of who Jesus is. But this is a major step forward. Still not complete but it's a great confession of faith in Christ. This declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, combines two ideas in Old Testament prophecy about who Jesus was or who the Messiah would be. It combines prophecies of 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14 that promises there would be a son of David who will have an eternal kingdom. It combines that with promises of Psalm 2 where there would be one who would be called the Son of who will be given the nations to rule over and receive them as an inheritance. And so in Jesus, these streams come together as the Messiah, who is the Son, who is the King, who is the Lord, who is the Judge. And there's something significant to this statement. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, because that's the question that was asked of Jesus at his trial in Matthew 26, which we'll get to in due course. And Jesus was asked, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, yes. And it was for that reason that Jesus was put on the cross. Because in their minds, he had committed blasphemy. And you remember the charge that was, was put over his head on the cross. Here is Jesus, the Son of God. So Peter is making a profound statement here, again, better than he knew at the time, that this is the Son of the living God. Think of the context. What's behind him? this mountainous area with this great big cave with a huge hole in it where there have been, there's been idol worship, there's been paganism, there's been all kind of false religions, and all of those are gone away. But this Jesus who stands in front of all of that is the son of the living God. The Jewish mind would 
hear that, we're to understand that this is a declaration that this one who is the son of the living God must in some way be equal to God in nature and in character and in truth and authority. So listen to what Peter says this morning. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, and evaluate your understanding of who Christ is this morning. Who do you understand him to be when you consider your sin, when you consider your guilt, when you consider your shame, when you consider your weakness and fallenness? Who is Christ? And anything that we say that is less than this confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, is insufficient and not worthy of who he is. Religions have their Jesus. But there's only one true Jesus. And who is he this morning? Jesus is more than a good teacher, more than a miracle worker, more than a prophet, more than a great man. He is God in the flesh, the Son of God, who alone is able to save and forgive those who come to him in faith. And so after Jesus, as Peter has made this great confession, Jesus responds with a great response, and the Father says it's the Father's revelation. So verse 17, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus responds to Peter's question with a beatitude, Blessed are you. A beatitude is an expression of godly favor, of godly delight that is placed on Peter here. It causes the Savior's heart to rejoice. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, we might translate it. This was his human name. This was his human position. You have a human father, Jonah, but it was not him that revealed this to you. It was the Father who is in heaven that has given you insight and understanding so that you know who this Jesus is. Peter, you didn't get this from human effort or human strength or any flash of human brilliance. It wasn't from anything human. The disciples have shown us already many times what happens when we think from a human perspective. There's doubt, understanding, misunderstanding, there's lack of faith, there's disobedience. It's all manifestations of sin. No, this statement from Peter came about because of divine revelation, but by my Father who is in heaven. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's making it clear that Peter could not have known this unless the Father revealed it to him. And this affirms then what is said elsewhere in Scripture. We can know nothing in a saving manner of who Christ really is unless the Lord reveals it to us. And referring to what the Father has done, Jesus repeats a theme that he has already said earlier in Matthew in places like Matthew 11, verses 25 to 27, or Matthew 13, verses 10 to 12, where he said, the Father chooses to reveal to some and withholds from others. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 13, to you, to this group, to you it has been given the secrets for the kingdom of heaven. My friends, it makes us disquieted. It makes us uncomfortable to think that God is in control. But I think it's better that Jesus is at the wheels of our lives than that any other force be in control. I find it actually encouraging and helpful that we can know nothing of Christ in a saving way that will bring us to eternity unless and until it's been given to us by the Father. Why? Because when the Father does it, He keeps it. 
He preserves. He strengthens. He sanctifies. And then delivers us safely to the shores of heaven where we will stand for eternity and say, only to you be all the glory and we will praise him forever and ever. So Jesus goes on in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. Now it's interesting, he gives him a new name here. We haven't known him as Peter up to this point. It's been Simon or other things, but Jesus encounters him. Jesus changes him. Jesus gives him a name. He says, you were Simon Bar-Jonah. Now I will call you Peter. And then the word game begins. And it's a word game that has caused a lot of discussion and dissension and division and difficulty in the history of the church. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus replies, you are rock. That's what the name Peter means. In the Greek, it's Petros. It means rock. You are rock. But on this rock, I will build my church. Now, in Aramaic, which would have been the language that they were engaged in, it's the same word in both situations. It's a wordplay. It's a pun. But in Greek, it breaks down into two different words, Petros for the name Peter and Petra for the rock on which the church will be built. One is simply masculine because it's dealing with a man, masculine in form. The other is feminine. But there's a word game going on here. Let's not miss it. There's something intentional and specific that, Peter's, uh, that Jesus is pronouncing here to Peter because there's a confession of faith and there's a person. So Jesus is saying, on the solid foundation of this true confession as given by Peter, Christ will build his church. Yet it's given to Peter in second person singular. You. He'd ask the question, you all. Here it's just you. So there's something unique about Peter. And because there's something unique about Peter, we're going to take time to look at it in fuller detail next week because we have indicators in the scriptures themselves throughout the New Testament that show what Jesus meant here. So we need to avoid two tendencies here. One, this is not a declaration that Peter was the Pope. This is not a declaration that there would be a succession of popes or bishops that will come after Peter. It's first person singular, you. Now I grew up in the tradition where there was the Pope. And I know why I'm no longer in that tradition. Because I believe in the sufficiency of Christ. I believe in the inerrancy of the word. I believe in the authority of God and the truth of scripture to lead the church who is the one who builds the church. Don't forget that that's the main promise here. I will build my church. But at the same time, I caution us to avoid an overreaction that denies anything of importance to Peter. The context and the language are clear that something is happening here that Jesus is saying to Peter. Because he says, you, not you all. As Peter confesses the truth, and as he lives according to it, he will be used of Christ to build his church. And so we'll look at this more next week, what that looks like then in the life of Peter as we explore it in the rest of the New Testament, and then what that means for us today. We'll look further than next week. What does it mean to be rocked here? What does it mean to have the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Because I want us to understand what is actually being said and what is not. Because in the history of church, 
the church, the battles that have been raised and written and dissented over often cause our emotions to cloud our observations. But for now, our focus is on the confession of Peter. But not on the confession only. A confession needs a confessor. So Peter does show great faith. Let's acknowledge it. Of course, it was given to him by the Father. He correctly confesses something is true because of special revelation. So do a little thinking here with me. Peter received this divine revelation. He received this understanding. So it cannot be Peter as Peter that is referred to here. But Peter is the one who confesses truth. Jesus is the one who builds the church. The church is the spiritual temple of the living God, built on those who properly confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, on those who remain faithful to him. You can't build on a confession alone. Jesus builds his church in and through his people. And so as Peter is faithful, as Peter is truthful, as Peter gives a true confession, he is rock. If not, he's a cause of stumbling and is subject to the discipline and correction of the Lord. So let's think then that there are many different illustrations that are used to show the church in the New Testament. And this is one of them. Rock and foundation is one of them. But think of the metaphor of the body and the head, or where the body of Christ and Jesus is the head. Or think of the vine and the branches, where we have to be tapped into the, the vine so that we can grow. Or the sheep and the shepherd, where there's only one shepherd who leads the sheep. There are different illustrations that show the nature of the church to Christ, and each one of them gives a little different understanding and a little different filter and a little different image, if you will, so that we understand who we are before Christ. And so the context gives us the special meaning for each context. So we might think, well, this is kind of an odd thing that I'm hearing this morning. Maybe just because we, we've been so caught into a grid of one particular way that we're forgetting that each text is interpreted in light of larger context of the scriptures. So, I want you to write in your notes Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 21. And then I want you to write Revelation 21, 14. Ephesians 2, 19 to 21, and Revelation 21, 14. Now, as I read Ephesians 2, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. He's giving his theology of the church, if you will. The first three chapters, this great truth of who, what is true in Christ, what we have in Christ, who Christ is for us, and then 4, 5, and 6, how we live it out in consequence. So in chapter 2, verses 19 to 21, Paul says this. He's writing to Ephesian believers. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in who the whole structure being joined together grows in a whole temple, holy temple in the Lord. There's a sense where the, the, the prophets and the apostles were used as a foundation, of course, built on Christ, who is the one who will build his church. But he's building his church in and through those he calls and brings into his family. Revelation 21, 14, as we have this image of the the heavenly Jerusalem, in the context of the new heavens and the new earth, where we're going to reign forever with God, 
and he will be our God and we will be his people. No divisions anywhere. What does John say as he's straining to understand the vision that he sees? He says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's something about the apostles, including Peter, that was instrumental. And we can embrace that without going far afield with silly interpretations that have arisen around that in the history of the church. But we'll look at that more next week. So after we've seen the great question, we have the great confession, and now we have the great promises. And Jesus will continue in his response to Peter in verses 18 and 19. And first he gives the great promise that the church will grow. Verse 18, and I, I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. The promise here is I will build my church. What an assurance that we have. It is Jesus who builds the church. It's his church. He calls. He sets apart. He gives the gifts. He is the Lord. He brings the discipline. He is to give all the glory. He will cause the church over which he is the head, over which he is the ruler, to grow. And that's true in a general sense. And it's been happening for 2,000 years as the church has been growing, expanding throughout the world. That's why we want to have a missions conference to celebrate how the church is growing. Even as we look at those needs where the church yet needs to grow, which is one-third of the earth where there is no confession of faith in Christ, where people can live and die and never hear the word Jesus. And we need to continue to, con- to raise up and to send out. So what does that mean then for a local church like h- here at ESC Orville? Well, we have the promise that the church that remains faithful to God, faithful to his word, will stand. As we preach the gospel and the whole counsel of God, as we declare who Jesus is, as we stand on the truth of God, as we call all around us to repent and believe, he will cause us to stand. So the promise is written to the church as a whole, but can be lived out in local expressions of that church as they are faithful to him. And it's a serious thing to remain faithful to him. Because in our very own country, churches close their doors every week. We have the promises in Revelation that Jesus will continue to discipline his church and he will remove the lampstand from those that wander away from his truth. But if we remain faithful as he is leading us, as he is strengthening us, as he is challenging us, he will build his church and nothing can stand against us. And the church here then, the word for church is the Greek word ekklesia, which just simply means the gathering. So the church then is the gathering of those who are called and set apart by God for his service. They're called out of their communities and their families and their organizations to, into the kingdom of light, and they express that by joining the new community that God is forming in Christ. Jesus himself has already laid it down hard in the gospel of Matthew that He calls us out even of our earthly families if they do not follow Christ because he's placing us into his new family, which are his people, the church. And if the word itself means the gathering, there can be no room for the Lone Ranger Christian. How can we live out the commands of God 
How can we obey him in serving one another? How can we help one another, pray for one another, give to one another, confront one another, whatever it is, unless we're together, which is what the church of God is. The spiritual community over which Jesus is head and Jesus is Lord and that he will build. The second promise is that death will die. Now, I've, this is my take on death will die. The verse actually says, and the gates, sorry, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I actually prefer the translation here, the gates of Hades, because that's actually the word in Greek. But I think also given the context that is behind him, this huge cave with a huge mountain with a cave in it, which was called by that name, this cave that represents all that is evil, all that is wicked, all that is unjust. This is the place that Jesus says, I will build my church, and not even this wicked place will prevail against it. Gates themselves are used to keep certain people in and to keep other people out. The gates of Hades are meant to keep people locked in their bondage to sin, and their bondage to idolatry, and their bondage to death, and their bondage to fear. The gates of Hades is a metaphor for death. But even death itself cannot prevail against the gospel. Because in Christ, life conquers death. Just as death could not hold Jesus, death will not be able to hold back the church of God and keep people there as Christ delivers them and pulls them out of the realm of death. But this was a place of great evil, the gates of Hades. And we all, in a sense, stand in the presence of the gates of Hades today as we walk through this world. Because the devil will try to keep people under his control and authority. He will try to keep people blind and dumb spiritually. He will get people to chase after the pleasures and treasures of this world, to look after the dark secrets of the underworld, or to follow false teachers and false religions. He will tempt people to follow earthly power, earthly authorities, earthly honors, earthly treasures. But Jesus says, I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will stand against it. The gospel destroys barriers that men and religions put up. It tears down strongholds over people's lives. It conquers foes. It brings light to the darkest parts of the earth. The church of Jesus Christ will prevail over the earth because Jesus has said he will build his church even over that which is called the gates of Hades. Today in our culture, I don't think I need to remind you of the reality of spiritual darkness. And what might be the equivalent of the gates of Hades flows false religion and rebellion against God. Out of the gates of Hades flows fear and laziness, pride and selfishness, tyrants and despots, greed and violence, bringing destruction to all who come within its reach. And we need to be aware that we are in the midst of a spiritual struggle. But Jesus is greater than all. And Jesus will conquer all. And he builds his church. And governments can't stop it. Ignorance can't stop it. Atheists and skeptics can't stop it. Religious zealots can't stop it. Those who are in Christ have the assurance that the church will prevail and his purposes will stand on the earth. So friends, let us stand firm. We live for just a short period of time. 
and eternity is long. Have the long picture in view. The church will stand. But stand firm on Christ as he causes you to stand and he will prevail. And then we have the great possession. The great possession. Verse 19. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We see authority here. We see responsibility here. And at this point, it's first person singular, second person singular, I give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We're going to look at this more next week because we need to understand what is actually being said here and what is not. All of us, if we're here this morning and we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we call ourselves children of the Reformation. That's what all Protestants are. And we stand then on the authority of Scripture and allow it to speak for itself. And so we'll do that in a deeper way next week. But to be sure, this does not mean that Peter stands at the pearly gates and decides who gets into heaven. We hear it in jokes. I even heard it growing up. That is not what Jesus is saying here. The image here does represent authority. It does represent the opening and closing of things. And these are keys that open up the kingdom of heaven, that open up the possibility of people hearing the gospel. And we'll see what that looks like. We have living examples of it in the New Testament to see how this played out. And this is in contrast then to what we will see in Matthew 23, where Jesus blasts the religious leaders saying, you shut the kingdom of heaven up and do not allow anyone to enter. But here, Peter is given keys that will open up the kingdom to those who will hear. So there's a lot that goes into this one passage. It involves authority. It involves responsibility. It involves confession of truth. It involves the application of that truth. It involves discipline and instruction. It involves binding and loosing. And this one I can't leave hanging till next week. We have to look at what does this mean, binding and loosing. Whatever you bind or loose on earth will be bound or loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Does that mean that earth influences heaven? Is heaven waiting to see what happens on earth so that it can respond accordingly? No. That's not what's happening here. We have a unique thing here in the original language. It's called a periphrastic future. It's not a word we use every day. I get it. So I'll just explain it. It just means talking about future events as if they've already happened. It's a future event, future tense that talks about it almost in a past tense. And if we were to translate it literally so that we'd get the text, we would say something like this. Whatever you bind on earth will already have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will already have been bound or loosed in heaven. It's showing that heaven is setting the pace. Heaven is guiding what happens on earth. And all earth is doing is reflecting what's already been decided in heaven. And so as we preach the gospel, as people repent, as they believe, as they come to Christ, we loose them, as it were, from their sins because we pronounce them forgiven because of what heaven has already declared in Christ. But as they remain hardened, resistant, stubborn, whatever it might be in their sins, we can pronounce them bound because that's still what's happening in heaven. They're bound, not able to be set free in Christ. It's 
heaven that's in control and earth reflects what is going on on earth. Those who confess Christ enter into the kingdom of heaven. We're seeing that all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. But flesh and blood itself cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That means it's not on human merit or human power or human decision or human strength. We must be born again. And we can enter the kingdom of heaven. This new birth that is a divine initiative, a divine power that transforms the human life, the human heart, so that we willingly, longingly, lovingly, decidedly say, I will follow Christ. And he will build his church as we confess him as he builds upon us. Now, as I said, we'll get to more of this next week, but just briefly stated here the authority that is given to Peter here, and let's let the text stop, speak for itself, because here it's given to Peter. Eventually, it's given to the apostles and to the church in Matthew 18 and in John 20. And then I think to the whole church in Matthew 28. So, let's just move through at our pace as we move through the scriptures. Because we'll interpret it all in light of different passages as need be. And finally, we have the great charge. The great charge, verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now think about it. This is, this is the greatest confession that the disciples could give. This is the high point of their faith and obedience and discipleship. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. By the way, don't tell anyone. Now, by the way, we don't have that restriction today. We are called to go and proclaim Christ to the nations, to make disciples of all nations. We have no excuse to keep our silence today. But why did Jesus say this? Well, where is he? He's in Gentile lands right now as this confession of faith is given, and he affirms that it is true. But he knows that the Jewish people still do not have an understanding of who, of who he is, not ready to accept his interpretation of the Messiah, of the kingdom of heaven, of the Son of Man. And so he says, don't talk about it yet, because he still needs to turn and go directly to Jerusalem where he will stand trial, and he will be whipped and beaten and put on a cross and be buried in a tomb and rise from the dead to complete his messianic role. And that has to be done in the Father's timing. So not yet. They're not going to understand. In fact, in very short order, we see that the apostles have not yet fully understood. In fact, the very next passage in Matthew tells us that the apostles did not fully understand. So we just work through the text and accept what we've been given. And we're so thankful that we have the full counsel of God that we have the indwelling spirit that allows us to understand these things at deeper levels. But for now, he tells them, don't say anything. It's okay to take a breath. We've gone through a lot this morning. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. He said, I will build my church. So our call and command is to follow him in his lordship, to stand firm in the truth. And as we stand firm and remain in the truth and are faithful, there awaits a glorious inheritance that he is preparing for us. And next week as we come back, we'll look at these key statements, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, what is the role of Peter, how does that affect us today? What does it mean for us as servants of the living God? And so come back next week and we'll look at this in more detail so that we understand what is happening here, so that we understand our role and our place in how the church is being built today. But in the meantime, what are some lessons that we can take away? 
The first one I simply put as a question, because it is a question we all have to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the most important question you'll ever answer. And if you have any questions about any of that, I'm going to remain down front after the service. Come and talk. That is the most important question you will ever deal with. Secondly, because we serve the Son of the living God, we will live for Him, come what may, until we see Him face to face. The problems we face on Tuesday or Wednesday or Saturday morning are nothing in light of the glories that we will have in Christ. Keep your eyes on the prize, for Christ will build His church. Thirdly, because we can only know Christ through divine revelation, we look to Him to teach us and guide us. We are dependent people. And so I pray that each morning, beginning tomorrow morning, as you open your Bibles, your prayer is, Open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold what is in your law. Psalm 119, verse 18. Unless the Lord gives us eyes to see and open our eyes, we're not going to understand. Our eyes will pass over the page. Words may pass through our minds and we'll miss the understanding that we can have unless he teaches us. Fourthly, because Jesus builds the church, we will rest in his peace and let him lead us. We're privileged to serve Christ, but we're servants. He is the Lord. Lastly, because we know the gospel truth, we will preach it well and without compromise. That is the need of the day. As confusion and darkness and misunderstanding circles around us, we must be those who stand on the truth and preach it well, not fearing the consequences, but wanting to please our God with our very lives. Now, as I said, I'll remain down front after, this, after the, our final song. We've talked about some heavy things this morning. I want to be available to talk and to interact with you. We want to have a full and firm understanding of the Scriptures and grow together in His truth and in His grace. Let us pray. Father, we... We know what we are made of. And we know how quick it is for us to just run to what is comfortable and run to what is known and we try to find our little heaven here on earth. And yet, Father, you have far greater things for us. As we fellowship with you through your spirit, as we learn the truth of your word, as we walk in ways that are glorious and powerful and truthful. We also know, Father, that this morning we are thankful that it is Christ who builds his church. And if we have the privilege of being in the church, Father, it's because of his grace and his mercy, and may he receive the glory in this church and in every local manifestation of your true church that we would be servants who are instructed and grounded in the word of God and seek your face and walk in humility before you with a recognition that it's all about you. So help us in these moments, Father, to understand and to grow. Thank you for being with us and guiding us. Drive your word close into our hearts and give us understanding as we commit ourselves to you anew. 
In Jesus' name, amen.